Thank you, baby. You may be seated. Bonnie, I didn't take a rain check last year. I was the keynote speaker. <laughs> I spoke before anybody last year. But um, I just, uh, when she gave me this assignment, I said, well, I'll try, but I think it's one of the most difficult assignments I've ever had, but I'll certainly try. And so here goes. I'll never forget the first time I... I saw God. He had a long, scary-looking beard and very bushy eyebrows and a frown that looked like canals were dug out in his forehead. And along with him was a secretary carrying a legal pad and an indelible pen. And strapped around his waist was a big dangling sword. And I met him under the chinaberry tree in my front yard. I'm like, woo, you're scary looking. But you know what? I knew that no matter what he looked like, I had to have him in my life. So I just let him and that secretary walk around while I went in and snitched some needle and thread out of Mama's little sewing kit and sat down under the tree to make me a necklace and a bracelet out of china berries. And there he is with that old secretary just writing as hard as they could write, just taking down everything I did. Just I knew any minute this thing was coming up and going into me. And he followed me when I, I got me a little piece of composition paper. And I put me some dry leaves in it. And I rolled it up and spit on it. And I made me a cigarette. Because, because when I was a little girl, that's the coolest thing you could do was smoke. Because all the billboards, the most gorgeous women in the world were on those billboards like that. And I'm like, yes, that's so cool. That's what I want to do. And there he is, and there's that secretary just writing away. And, you know, I had a lot of trouble with the, with the scripture in the Bible that says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because he didn't stay the same. <laughs> One day I saw him and. And she wasn't with him. And there was no clipboard and no legal pad and no pens. And, and he had taken the sword off. And I thought, well, you still got those shaggy eyebrows, but let's go. <laughs> and so we have negotiated quite a journey, this God and I. And, you know, I'm glad I learned early on that I could not make it without him. No matter what form he took on in my mind, I had to have him with me. And I learned that early. And uh, we, you know, we traversed through a lot of terrain that some of it I certainly wouldn't have chosen. But I learned early on, 
you follow him now, and you stay close to him, and if you see him turn, you turn. And sometimes in our path was the most treacherous mountain that you could ever imagine. And I'm like, oh, God, i got to go up there with him. And I hope his eyebrows don't get bushier because I may get real scared. And then all of a sudden we're going up, and I know he's kind of pulling on me, pulling on my hand. And all of a sudden he says, come over here. And we go, and we sit down on the ledge and just dangle our feet off, he and I, and just sit there together and just have the most wonderful little conversation just sitting on the edge of that mountain. And he has changed forms so many times to me that you can understand why in a child's mind, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, not knowing that I'm doing the changing. But you see what I mean? He just didn't fit the mold. And Merle asked me to tell this part of the story. I don't particularly care about telling this, but I always do what he says, you know. And... uh, I took classical music since I, well, I started taking music when I was six years old. And I studied classical music. And uh, when I was 12 years old, I gave a solo concert at the Little Theater here in Lake Charles. When I was 15, I gave another solo concert at some facility here in Lake Charles. And uh, I was invited to... um, study music in Europe. And there's not anything wrong with studying music in Europe, but for some reason, it just, it didn't seem like something that would enhance my ultimate goal. And then, you know, every teenager wants to make money. You know, I want to make some money. Well, I was a piano teacher for several years, and I had quite a few students, and I gave, they gave their own recital in the high school there in kinder. But I got an invitation. I thought, well, this is easier money than teaching all them kids. And I got a call from the air base out here at Chenault. That's when it was like wild and woolly after World War II. And uh, the man said he was officer so-and-so. I didn't know his rank, but... And he said, we want you to come and play for the officers club. He said, you just sit down at a piano and play. And he said, every once in a while, there'll be a microphone there. And if you can sing a little song, you know, well, it wasn't Amazing Grace. And he said, you just sing a song. And he said, and we'll pay you well. And you tell your mom and dad that two officers from Lake Charles will drive to Kinder pick you up, bring you to Chenault, and take you back home when you're done working. And then there was the money. And you know what? I didn't even give it very much thought. I guess I, I don't know if I wasn't ambitious. I certainly wasn't spiritual. I mean, I had the Holy Ghost, but that don't mean you're spiritual, you know, or that you're spiritually minded. But there was the man there without the sword and without the secretary. But it was like... No, I don't think the officer's club is going to lend anything to where I'm ultimately going. And I said, I really appreciate the offer, but thank you. I, I won't be able to do that. And then in college, I had all kind of offers, and they were very careful to give me little 
snippets of things that they would not require me to do when they wanted me to participate in operas or whatever out there. And they'd say, you don't have to wear makeup and you don't have to wear jewelry and you don't, you know, and they just tell me all and you can do your thing. And I, and they, oh, and you don't have to dance. They'd say, you don't have to dance because most of them, there was just a lot of dancing. And I said, well, no, that's okay. I don't, I don't think so. And I remember Dr. Bulber, a lot of you will recognize that name, out at McNeese, and he called me in his office one day, and he said, Joan, I, I understand that from the instructors and the students that you can play Bach and make it sound like Beethoven. Well, now, to a lot of you, that's kind of Greek. But I'm thinking that, that maybe a professor... You know, that appealed to the kids because Bach is not pretty music. It's, it's difficult, but it's not pretty. And I'm thinking, well, they probably didn't want it to sound like Beethoven, you know. And, um, but he said, he said, but I understand what a talent you have. And he said, what I want to know as the dean over, this, over the fine arts department is what are you going to do with this talent? And I said, well, I... I guess I'll just, um, I'll use it in churches, I guess. He said, you're going to waste all this in a church? And I said, well, I guess I never quite looked at it like that. And um, we had a little longer discussion. And then one day, the leader of the jazz band at McNeese came up to me, and he said, Joan, the band said that I'm wasting my time, that you're not even going to consider this. But he said, the jazz band wants you so much to play the keys in the jazz band and kind of, I guess, travel with them wherever they go, you know. And I said, oh, I, don't, I won't be able to do that. He said, I told them you wasn't going to do it. And they said, well, try anyway. <laughs> so, it, you know, there was a, a little thing of all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I kind of early on had the idea that if whatever you're doing in life will not advance your ultimate goal, then just scrap it, you know, if it's not going to really, and especially if it's going to be a negative to that, you definitely want to scrap it. And then God led me through, carefully through the romance years, and God had the most wonderful prince waiting for me that made me so glad that whoever this and this and this that I thought was a prince, that God said, nope, that's not your prince, and then there he was, the real one, and I can... <laughs> And I guess I can, t I can kind of maybe thank the Tennies for a part in this because uh, Brother Tenney, you know, he's, he's a wise old owl. He does all kind of stuff that's really smart. And so he asked Merle to be the music director at a regional tent revival in the DeRitter area, and Tom Barnes was preaching, and he asked me to be the musician. Mm, okay. So... So Merle and I were buddies. We were friends, you know, like, you know, just 
you know, run up the hill, Jack and Jill up the hill, that kind of friend, you know. And never dreaming that when Jack and Jill came down the hill, they'd be in love. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you, Thetis, and tell Tom I said thank you, because actually for that period of time, that revival, we stayed in their home because we were just buddies, you know. We, would, we couldn't have stayed there if we'd have been, you know, romantic buddies, but we were just Jack and Jill buddies. And then by the, the last night of this particular situation, the prince asked me to marry him, and I quickly said yes, <laughs> quickly. <laughs> and you just found out how long ago all of that took place. And uh, so we married, and we kept moving our date, you know, closer and closer because we had it set in March of the next year, and we, and you know, that was not cell phone days when you have unlimited minutes or unlimited text. That was hello, long distance calls. And I wasn't making a lot of money in those days. I mean, I had piano students, and then I had a job as a music director in a certain church, but I still wasn't making a bunch of money. And so, the phone calls were getting very expensive. And believe it or not, we wrote real letters that you write with your hand. You know, they don't do that anymore. I mean, how, how dear is it to you to clutch a computer to you and say, oh, this is my baby's letters to me? It's so, ooh, that's not nice. That's stiff. That's ugly. But I got a box of letters, and they've turned yellow but I can still hold them and do this with them. And it's so precious. I can't read them, but I know what they used to say, and I know they haven't changed. <laughs> so that part is good. And we kept saying, well, we can't afford our phone bill, so, okay, back this on this month. No, this month. No, let's go back until we finally got it to November. So that's what we're in right now. And what a wonderful decision that was. I'll never forget our first revival together, and I'm certainly not going to tell 800 years of history to you today. I'm just popping from one thing to the other. And our first revival, of course, we were staying in the back of the church. That's where all important people stayed in those days. And... Uh, we had a room with a bed, and then we had the kitchen that belonged to the church, and we had the restroom that belonged to the church, public, you know. So I went in, and I didn't want to show my despair because it was extremely not clean. So I said, babe, let's go to the store and let me get some stuff. So I go into the store. We got stuff to scrub with. And I scrubbed that kitchen floor, and I waxed it. <clears throat> Didn't have sense enough to get self-polishing wax. I had to buff it by hand after that. And so then we're in our little nest, and there's a crack like this at the outside door. Can you see my fingers? I remember it. I don't know how tall that is, but I know it was that big. And outside the door, hanging on the roof, were icicles 16 inches long. Good morning. It was very chilly, yes. And knowing me, you would know, yes, she was very cold. <laughs> and we had uh, quite a few visitors there. We had, uh, 
In fact, I cooked some pork chops one night, little thin pork chops, because there's no place to eat there. I mean, it was a little bitty place. And I put them up on the cabinet, and I said, now, when we get out of church tonight, we can have us a little pork chop sandwich. Well, when we came back from church, our guest, the humongous multiplied rats had taken our pork chops. They left us the bones, but they had eaten the meat. And a friend of mine and her husband had preached a revival there, and she said, Joan, when you were at such and such a place, she said, did you walk on the floor? And I said, well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I didn't know any other way. She said, not me. She said, I made my husband line up chairs. And she said, I just jumped from chair to chair. She said, I wasn't getting down there with them rats. Do you hear me? (laughs) So Merle was having a hard time with this because, and I could tell it was just wearing on him. And I wasn't saying anything. I was just as happy as a stupid, I don't know what. I didn't care. I didn't care. But I picked up that he was very worried. And I went to him and I said, will you tell me what your problem is on this first revival of a whole life of revivals together? He said, Joan, the house I took you out of. He said, my God, it was so beautiful. And look at where I brought you. I said, maybe you didn't know it, but I was not driven out of that house. Nobody asked me to leave. I left because I wanted to be with you. And if you're in a tent, if you're in just such as this, or wherever you are in this whole world, if I can be with you, I can forfeit anything, but I got to be where you are. So that set his mind at ease. And, you know, we we were accommodated in the backs of a bunch of churches. Oh, incidentally, on Saturday morning at 5 o'clock, I got a knock on my bedroom door, which was adjacent to the church kitchen. And they said, Sister Ewing, we just wanted to tell you that we're in here frying donuts for a um, fundraiser, and we poured about a gallon of hot grease on the floor in here. So be careful. It's slippy. We're going to try to get some of it up. Well, some was right. So I went back in and scrubbed it again, put the same dumb wax on it, and buffed it myself. They did it again the next Saturday. We were there three weeks. On the third one, I said, I don't care how greasy it is. It can just stay. I don't care. We'll jump chairs like Wanda did. And uh, <laughs> But uh, those were good days. And... Uh, and then um, real life set in. And uh, I don't want you to think that, that all of anybody's life is exactly like what they would order if in their immaturity they were asking for things that possibly would not be good for them, but because they wanted comfort, they would ask for it. Because nobody's life is just ideally perfect. But... Uh, There came some storms, and um, we held hands, and we weathered them. And I remember one morning at the house on uh, 171 where Tammy lives, I had a chase lounge in there by the fireplace, 
And I, in those days, I could drive cars. And so most every morning, I was in the car and down to the church by 6 o'clock. And it was cold, so in the wintertime, sometimes 6 o'clock was very dark. But me, I wasn't scared of nothing. And a lot of times, uh, Merle came, was, was actually with me. And on those days, he drove. But some days, he would come in from preaching somewhere real late. And I'd just get up and get in that big old long Lincoln that cost $600. And um, very old, yeah. And then I would drive to the church, not no more scared than nothing, go in that church and pray because... I had a challenge. I had something that needed to be taken care of, and I knew that the only place to take care of it was on my knees before the man with the bushy eyebrows. <laughs> I knew he was going to help me get through it, and he did. And then I remember the day in 81 when the doctor walked out of surgery where my husband was, and he said it's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I didn't know anything about Hodgkin's, but I knew what lymphoma meant. And uh, I just, I left the room. I didn't even listen to the rest of the report. And I went up to his room in the hospital. I left the surgical area. And I'm piecing all this together. And like Vonnie told you, you know, we were kind of always by example. We just kind of, like they'll say, just suck it up and live, you know, like that. Well, that's what I did. <clears throat> and so he was going to be in one-on-one -on -one care for quite a while. So Sue said, let me take you to the house. And I said, well, take me to the house. Let me get a shower, and I'll come right back. By the time he gets to his room, I'll be back. So we drove home. And she kept saying to me all the way home, if you want to cry, I don't care. And I said, I'm fine. And she said, well, it really doesn't matter. If, if you just do what, say whatever you want to say or do what you want. I said, well, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm going home to get a bath. So we got to the house, and she wanted to come in with me. And I said, please don't come in. I said, go on to your house, and I'll call you when I get redressed and whatever. She said, okay. So I walked in the house, and I turned to go down the hall, and I just stopped because it was Tuesday, and I just stopped right there in the hall, and I said, God, if you'll hold me all in one piece and let me get through Wednesday night church, Sunday school, and Sunday night service, you and I will talk about this on Monday. And I walked in to my bathroom area, and I went in the closet. And the most emotional thing that I did when I thought my world was about to end was I reached in the closet on Merle's side and I took an armful of his suits and I just hugged them up to me and buried my head in them and just stood there. Never said a word, didn't cry, didn't scream, just stood there. And we came through it and and God did some kind of major surgery that that doctor didn't do. And 10 years later, Tammy and I were at Diagnostic in Houston for another colonoscopy because we had told them that he had colon cancer. And the doctor came out and he said to me, he said, 
so your husband had colon cancer? And I said, yes, sir. I said, well, they called it non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He said, oh, no. He said he didn't have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I said, yes, sir, he did. He said, no, he didn't because he wouldn't be here for this test if he'd had that. And I said, yes, sir, he did. We had to get the records from Lake Charles for them to believe what we were saying. They totally did not believe it. And so that day, his eyebrows weren't even shaggy because that's the kind, compassionate God that you always want him and to know him as. And so we've just kind of walked through life together. And then there was the day that I think Tammy was also with me that day, and we went to a big, tall brick building in Houston that does nothing except diagnose eye problems. And Brother Tenney had recommended a certain doctor there that he thought was, was very good, and he was very good. And so I made an appointment because what was happening was every time a car was coming toward us, it looked like the front of that car was smashed in, and the, the dash of the car, not the dash, what do you call it, the grill of the car, was real tall. Everything was just, I mean, people's faces, they, did, they looked like freaks. It was like a freak. Everything was smashed up this way, like there, no, it was just, it's distorted vision. It was very distorted, so... I thought, well, there must be something can make people look like they really look, and those cars are really not wrecked. So he took five tests, actually the same test, five times, and he never would tell me. And he sent me down the hall to another doctor. And so he tested my eyes, and, and he was pretty clipped about it, you know. So the man said, he said, you have macular degeneration. And he said, um, I said, well, you want to say what that means? He said, well, it means that what you see today, your vision will never be any better. He said, it will be much worse, but it will not be better. And I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, I could have fell out on the floor, you know, and kicked and screamed, but it wouldn't have it wouldn't have helped anything, so we got in the car and came home. And from that day, I do want to say this is a very, this part is a good report, that it didn't just plummet all of a sudden, or I, I don't know what I would have done. It would just come down, and then I would get used to that plateau of eyesight, and then where I could kind of, you know, get around, and then it would plump it, plummet again. So it's done it in increments to where I've been able to adjust. And with macular degeneration, I guess the name of a good sermon would be, don't ever look where you're going. <laughs> because if you look at where you're going, you're going to slam into something that's in the way of where you are going. <laughs> because whatever you look at disappears. It's just not there. So... If you think you're having a conversation with me and I'm not looking at you, it's because I'm trying to find you. I know you're there, but I'm trying to find you. And I just hate people used to that wouldn't look me in the eye when I'm talking to them. It's like, look at me. I used to tell my kids, look at me. And uh, 
so then there was that little adjustment that, that we still make adjustments on that for sure. But um, then in 05, you know, there was Rita. And then after Rita, there was the wreck, which he had just let me out of the car because um, Nikki was going to help me try to find a few little Christmas presents. Just It was just before Christmas, and she was going to help me find some last-minute gifts. So he let me out of the car. Then he's going on home, and Nikki's going to bring me. And all I know is that there were five vehicles involved, and not one person in any of the five vehicles knows what happened. It just so happened that he was in this black Suburban, and it was flipping end over end and rolling this way. And, and the pickup truck driver said, he said, that Suburban was twirling like this as it circled my pickup two times. And then a woman was driving on the shoulder, and she called 911, and she said, there's a big black Suburban flying over my car, and a man's leg is hanging out the window. And they said, well, not a leg. She said, well, it's got a shoe on it. And then eventually the vehicle landed in a deep ditch, which I know he, I know he was so glad to quit rolling and pitching and tumbling. I cannot imagine just the mental anguish of that. He said it lasted forever. It would not stop. It would not stop tumbling, twisting, flipping, turning, rolling. It wouldn't stop. And he was, uh, you know, he was all broken up pretty bad in here. And then for months we had um, a wound nurse that came to our house and dressed the wound so he could be at home. And we have two chairs and a couch in our bedroom. And at that particular time, we had 10 people living in the house with us. Thank you for the big house. And uh, I don't know what we'd have done if we wouldn't have had all our kids there with us because it was just, we were just like this far from just insanity. But they would always bring us back to reality. And they were so helpful in, in helping Daddy get in the bed and helping him get out and get into his chair. And he and I literally sat in those two chairs for months months and I would leave to go to church and AJ would say I'm not leaving Papa by himself and AJ would stay with Papa so he wouldn't be alone and then I would rush back when church was over but we sat there not chittering and chattering oh no 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 we were sitting there in silence and the gloom kept getting lower and lower and deeper and deeper and if he would have talked I could have stood it but he wouldn't talk about it. He wouldn't refer to it. And one day, thank God, the tennies came. And I got out of the room, and his friend Tom went in and took my chair. And Thetis and I just stayed out in the other part of the house. And after a while, Tom came out, and he said, he said, I, I, think, I think we made it over, Joan. He said, he talked. And he cried. I said, he talked? He said, yes, he did. Well, I knew the healing process was literally beginning at that time. 
And uh, let's see, that was 05. And then in 06, they discovered that he had prostate cancer. So we're at MD Anderson, and they decide to do a CAT scan before they do the treatment for that particular cancer, and they find a mass on his kidney. And so, of course, they put the other on hold, and it was scheduled surgery pronto to get the mass off the kidney. And the doctor told us that, that it was, he had gotten every bit of it. He said, I checked all the peripheral of the mass I took off, and there were no cancer cells on that. Checked the kidney, no cancer cells. So see, there was another miracle, yet another. And during that time at MD Anderson, I, I mean, we just kind of have this unspoken thing. It's just me. It's not him. But I just will not, I will never let him spend the night by himself at night. I just, I just can't stand that in a, in a hospital. And so knowing that you just don't risk me in a place as big as MD Anderson because I'm not confined to a bed and I got to go out and find food and I got to, you know, I got to move. So Gwen came and she stayed in a hospital that joins MD Anderson by a hallway, a long hallway. And she would come early in the morning and get me and we would run out together and actually sit down and eat breakfast together. She would take me to where the breakfast was, and we would eat breakfast, come back, and it was time for his breakfast. And then we, that's the way we did our rituals. We just, she would get me and take me to eat. Of course, we didn't get out of the building, you understand. We stayed in the building, but in a place that big, there's plenty of places to eat. And then one of our treats was she would take me down to a Starbucks on one of the lower floors, and we would get a Starbucks, and buddy, was that ever a treat. And uh, you just learn to major on the things that are just special that ordinarily wouldn't be that much, but in certain times in your life, they're just very much. <laughs> and then, let me see. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> Trying to get your record out here is pretty mind-boggling without no notes. But um, I do know that the next year, he had a heart attack. And uh, that was a scary thing, but there's not a lot that you can do to stop it or start it or quit it or make it go away so you go ahead and you live through that and uh, and then after the heart attack we had a heart break and um, thought we weren't going to make it through that one but we did just because the God that goes everywhere really is everywhere and he stayed very very close the next year we had eight week we had a we had eight weeks. No, the next year we had another wreck. And I got to be in it this time. <laughs> I didn't leave him all by himself. I was there right in the front seat, got my wrist broken in two places and had to have surgery. You are not getting all this wreck glory. I'm getting in on this one. <laughs> So then we went through that one again, and he was all busted up inside, but he wouldn't even see about himself because he was so worried about me. So we got through that, and then we had eight weeks 
of radiation back at MD Anderson, and we could stay in a motel until radiation, but you can't go Houston, Lake Charles every day to and from before and after. So we got a room there close to the hospital, and, um, and we got an adjoining room, and whoever was going to see, take me to see what I was doing and get us to where we were going had to stay there. Gwen stood, uh, stayed there probably most of the weeks. And then Tammy stayed a week. Jimmy came and stayed a week and uh, just helped with everything. And it was, just, it was just beautiful to see them in operation of assistance. And uh, we made it through the radiation. And then it got to be 09, and we had us a new president and a bunch of stuff. And, and here we are, and it's still 9. And uh, we're all intact and all put together. But I just want to tell you that the God that the God that I first met under the Chinaberry tree, even though he's changed a whole lot to me, I'd take him any way I could get him. I would always choose him. It wouldn't make any difference to me what form he came in. And I'm a very independent person, and to have to rely on people to let me know where I am and where I'm going and what I'm doing, that's very hard for me, very hard for me. I just, I remember in St. Louis, we had not been to a general conference in five years, and so David and Carlin stayed in the same hotel we were in, which was the headquarters, and they would always come and get us and take us down and then have a car waiting, put us in the car. And one morning, it was actually, I guess the first morning, I got up and got dressed and Merle said, where are you going? I said, well, I called David and he's going to come get me and, and he's going to take me down to eat. I said, do you want me to bring you something up? And he said, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. I said, why? He said, I forget you can't see. And I said, well, that's okay. A lot of people forget that because I'm a faker. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of the way that worked. And then we just got back from Mexico where Doug and Lori Schmitz were there, especially to see that we didn't run into any buildings and knock them down. And they took care of us there. And the other day I was, I was praying and I, I got to thinking about the people that actually see after us, Jimmy and Taylor, and, and like this week, Natalie's my cadet this week, and people that actually just see that we get where we're going and that we arrive there all in one piece. And I've had a bunch of tumbles. I've got to tell you one tumble before I leave. Uh, we were preaching a, a missions and youth convention in Toronto, Canada, and uh, it was, I was to speak in 30 minutes, and so it was in this huge, massive hotel. We were sharing the time with Anthony and Mickey Mangan. And I said, well, I got 30 minutes. I'm going to run up to the room. And so I went out to go to the room, and horror of horrors, there was not a banister on the steps. So I misjudged, and the atrium floor was that gravelly finish. You know, it's real rough. And so... I learned quickly, don't try to break your fall or you'll be real sore, just splatter. 
And so when I saw I was falling, I just fell headlong on my face, hit my eye right here. And there must be a bunch of blood vessels there because evidently the blood was just pouring. I didn't know it. And there was nobody in the atrium except the bartender. And, um, and they just looked at me like, well, I don't remember serving you, but <laughs> there you are. So I walked over, and they had a display, like the Pentecostal bookstore or whatever. They had a display, and I go up to this girl. I have no idea what I look like. I don't know. My whole face and clothes is red. And I said, could you go get Brother Ewing? He's on the front bench right inside this door. And she's like, yeah. So she went in. I thought, oh, God, when he gets here, it's, it's perfect. So he walked out, and he saw me, and he said, oh, my God, my baby. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to have to console him. So <laughs> we got up to the room, and I said, I got to go speak. I don't have but 20 minutes. He said, you're not going anywhere. He said, Mickey will take your slot, and you take Mickey's slot. It's later in the afternoon. I said, okay, okay. So they came in, and they did stitches on my eye, and they were so gracious because I guess they heard that Americans sue people every time they fall on a banana peeling or something. I had no intentions. They took my glasses that were like this thing. was. It, they were just in a mess, and they took them and took them quickly down and got them all fixed and brought them back. They were trying to do everything just right. But uh, back to where I was when I decided to tell you about my one of many, many falls. I don't, I haven't fallen except in that parking lot in Houston. I hadn't fallen in a long time, like I used to fall every few weeks. But maybe I'm being more careful. I don't know. But I just want to tell you that it's not the strength of the person that counts. It's the strength of what surrounds that person. And I chose early on to be surrounded by him and his presence and his closeness. No matter if he was coming near me with wrath, if he was coming with hugs, if he was coming with compassion or correction, I didn't care. I had to have him. I had to have him and I knew it. And I want to tell you that of all of the protection that I could ever have in my life, and I have some of the best, most dedicated people in this church, they all watch out for me because they all know I'm kind of like a little scatterbrained and they know I can't see, so they try not to let me run over them, but then they take me to wherever. It's so sweet. But of all the choices, the fact that I would choose him to be my guide you cannot make it without him. I'm sorry you cannot. There's no point in trying. You cannot make it without him. He is, he is your answer. He's your safety. He's the one that will take you through any place. And I promise, I don't know everything I'm talking about when I say any place, but I know a bunch of locations places you would not want to go, not in emotion, not in hurt, not in pain, not in embarrassment. You wouldn't want to go there. But believe me, this God goes everywhere and fills every need that you have.